So this has been said the hardest, to be the hardest passage in the book of Hebrews. One of two that are hard to interpret, hard to understand, hard to apply. And the way that I'm going to approach it this morning is under the banner of what I'll call worst case scenario. The worst possible scenario. And the reality of apostasy. Okay? Now, I happen to be a worst case scenario kind of person. I've been called Eeyore in my life. Because when a predicament comes, I immediately take it to the worst possible scenario. Because maybe it will be less than that and then we can be happy. Right? So the author here is giving the worst possible scenario for these people. And that is apostasy. Worst possible scenario. Uh, Some of you have had professors. I have memories of professors who would begin a class, the beginning of a semester, and present some worst case scenario. They would talk to you about now, if you don't do your work, if you're caught plagiarizing, if you're caught cheating, you will fail this class. And it puts this reverent fear in the student. It awakens them. So a a worst case scenario and being loud and clear about it, there's a sense in which we understand that from human experience. Worst case scenario from a doctor and a medical diagnosis. Some of you have heard that yourselves or applied to a loved one. And I can think of multiple movies that have used this line. Lines like, you have stage four cancer, and there is no stage five. Right? The movie Wit. Any of you seen the movie Wit? Powerful line from that movie. Stage four alarms because there is no stage five. That's, that's worst case scenario language. I think that is a sense of what the author of Hebrews is doing here. He's talking worst case scenario. And we could call it stage four apostasy. Worst case scenario. And he's going to give us four indicators for stage four apostasy. Okay, I have several points. And boy, let me say, because this is such a hard passage, you're going to feel it. Maybe you already do. Um, And lots to say. Lots to explain. Probably a lot of questions will arise for you, and I just can't address everything, but I'm going to do my best to hit the major targets. And the first one is this. Well, wait a minute. I thought we were a church that said you can't lose your salvation. You're making it sound like you can lose your salvation. We do have a belief on that in our church and in our denomination. And do you know what it is? The little saying, has, you've heard it has been said like this. Once saved, always saved. And we believe that. Maybe a better statement is, once saved, always saved. If truly saved. If truly saved. Because what we're going to see in our passage here and hear from other scriptures elsewhere is there can be an appearance of spiritual health. There can be an appearance of faith in Christ. But the testing of trials and hardship can wither that faith and expose it 
as not being a sincere faith, of not being a saving faith. That's, that's a hard subject, and I know that it is. But it's what the Lord has given us in Hebrews chapter 6. So three simple points, a lot of subpoints. And the first point this morning is this. It's a sober warning. It's a warning that sobers us. It should bring us out of our slumber, out of our days, out of our confusion in the midst of life and its busyness and its trials and hardship and suffering. This warning should be like smelling salts that wake, up, wake us up out of our stupor, out of our sluggishness, out of our laziness. It's a sober warning and it is beware the reality of apostasy. So let's define our term. We defined it a few weeks ago, but let's do it again. Apostasy is very simply this. It's letting go of Jesus and walking away from the church and saying, I do not believe anymore. I'm done. I'm letting go of my faith. And this is what he's warned of in previous chapters where he said, don't let your faith slip away. And he uses that nautical term of, of a ship drifting away. Apostasy defined is quite simply, it's drifting away from the church. It's losing your faith, or really, time exposing you for what your faith is. Rob Rayburn says this about apostasy. He says, the reality of apostasy is addressed in a number of places in the Bible. And it is elaborated in different ways under different names. John called it the sin unto death. Jesus called it the sin against the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament sacrificial ritual, it is known as the high-handed or the intentional sin. But always the point is made that there is no possible recovery from this sin. And that's what would cause every one of us to shudder under the reality of apostasy. That it is real. That it exists. And there have been a lot of sermons preached on this text. There have been a lot of people reading and chewing on this text that have been driven to an unhealthy fear. And this morning, I want to make sure we address that. There is a reverent fear that should come from grappling with this teaching on apostasy. But if you've got a fear, it's great evidence that you've not committed that sin because you fear the living God and the reality of judgment apart from having a Savior. So, I'll begin with that. Apostasy defined. Now, apostasy, not a surprise. You shouldn't be surprised to hear this sermon about apostasy and the things that are said about it. We're prepared for this whole concept of apostasy, Old Testament and New Testament. There are examples in the Old Testament. There are examples in the New Testament. King Saul in the Old Testament, king of Israel, who had all the appearance of knowing and loving the Lord, and yet his heart would harden and he would be called wicked. In the New Testament, Judas himself, one of the twelve disciples, who had grown up uh, under the influence, he had had the influence and benefit of the disciples and Jesus' teaching and the miracles, but the test of time proved that his faith was not sincere. 
And he's been called the son of perdition. Uh, in Paul's ministry, we learn of Demas in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, who it, said, it says, fell in love with the world and left the church. So we're not surprised by apostasy. We were prepared for it. We were told to expect it. In fact, um, not in the version that I read, but in the King James Version and other versions, I don't know which you were reading, but the word if appears. If they should fall away. And that's actually not in the Greek and not in a lot of our English translations. It was added, this if, but really it's more of a when. When people fall away. So we really should have an understanding, a category, a self-examination of this sin is possible. It, it is real. It exists. And we're to be on the guard against it. Now, what are we looking for? What are the four indicators that he gives about, about apostasy and, and what it looks like? How it happens? Well, he gives us that. In verses 2, the second part of verse 2 through 5. Listen to that again, and we'll briefly comment on each. He says, it's not verse 2, it should be verse 4. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, one, who have tasted the heavenly gift, two, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, three, and who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age, four, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. To their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting Him to public disgrace. There's your four major indicators that the author is using. And here's where some of the dif difficulty comes in. What do those things mean exactly? If we could only ask Him and have Him flesh it out for us, we would have a much clearer understanding. But we do have some understanding of what He's saying. There is some, some uh, difference of opinion of, of what He is saying here. And I'll, I'll just comment on those. So first, it says, those who have once been enlightened. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean to have been enlightened? Justin Martyr and others later, beyond this date, would refer to baptism with the language of enlightenment. Could he possibly be referring to baptism? He possibly could be. The concept is not so separated from it that it couldn't be that. But probably what it means is being enlightened, coming into knowledge, being enlightened with that knowledge of who Jesus is. So if you've come into the covenant community with an understanding of, I need Jesus, Jesus is the only Savior of the world, in that sense, you've been enlightened. That's likely what he means. Secondly, those who have tasted the heavenly gift. Well, what does that mean? Well, remember, it feels like a long time ago because it was weeks ago for us that he had just had this long commentary about the wilderness generation of Israel. But when you look at it by sentences, it was not long ago that he was just talking about the wilderness generation. I think, and commentaries tend to agree, that he's talking in reference to that wilderness generation. He's using them as an example, and all four of these things was true of them, 
And we need to be careful that it's not true of us. So what was tasting the heavenly gift as the wilderness generation experienced it? Well, it was manna. It was bread from heaven where every morning God provided abundantly for their physically need. And there was, there was manna. And for a person, for those Israelites to have every day seen the faithfulness of God's provision, this miracle bread from heaven, for them to have tasted that, been nourished by that, and then to walk away is an example of the hardening of the heart. But commentaries, commentators also suggest that the same is true for the New Testament church and for us. We will, in a few minutes, be invited to taste and see that the Lord is good. And so there could be a sacramental sense to this. That if you've come to the table, if you've come to the point in your life where you've professed faith in Christ and you've come to the table and been reminded for years about your need for Christ and His provision of Himself, and yet your heart should harden and you say, I'm done, I'm walking away from the church, then this passage would apply in the very same way that it would have to the wilderness generation. Then thirdly, he says, those who have shared in the Holy Spirit. And fourthly, those who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come. What could these things possibly be? Well, he could be referencing the work of the Holy Spirit through that apostolic age and the book of Acts where God did wonders and signs and miracles. You may remember there's a line in Acts that says even many priests came to believe in Jesus. And some who have studied the book of Hebrews think that one of the objects of all this teaching on the priesthood may be priests who are referenced in the book of Acts who first came to faith in Christ but now are missing the priesthood and their offering of many sacrifices and are saying, let's go back to how things were. And so it very well could be that. That makes sense. We, we just don't know. Just like we don't know who the author is by name. He doesn't tell us. And we don't know the exact audience to whom he's speaking. He uses this language that does make sense, Old Testament and New, but we can't be 100% sure what he's thinking and how he would explain it himself. But they, just like the Old Testament people, and we, just like them, have parallel experiences to every one of these four things. They are consistent parallels in the life of Israel. Michael Kruger in his commentary on Hebrews, speaking of these, these uh, blessings and privileges that God's people have been exposed to, and how the hardening of the heart somehow happens in we turn and walk away from them. He says this, Think of all the experiences that the average Israelite had back at the time of the Exodus. The parting of the Red Sea. A column of fire leading them by night and a cloud leading them by day. Water coming from a rock at Moses' command. Manna appearing each morning. The moment Moses comes down from the mountain with his face shining so brightly that the people cannot bear to look at it. The rolling thunder from the mountain. The delivery of the Ten Commandments. 
All these are experiences and evidences that as impressive as they were, still some people fell away. That, he says, is what an apostate is. Someone who experiences many blessings and privileges of God, but concludes, no thanks, I don't believe anymore. That's what an apostate is. We're not surprised by it. We were prepared for it. And we're told by the author of Hebrews, we are warned soberly to look for it. To not let your heart grow cold and calloused towards the living God. Those are the four indicators of apostasy. These spiritual privileges that God has always given His people, that He's given us, we understand that those privileges, those blessings, even one that we're going to experience in a few moments and one that we're experiencing now in the preaching of His Word, those things are powerless to save us. Being a member of a church, being baptized, enjoying singing songs and hearing sermons in Sunday morning worship, and growing up in a Christian home, these are all privileges and benefits of living in the covenant community, living in the church. But the author of Hebrews reminds us, he warns us, that these privileges alone do not save. Nothing saves but Christ and Christ alone. Our faith must be in Him. It must persevere in Him. Each person must be earnest and sincere in their faith in Christ. And if so, if it is a sincere faith, the Scriptures teach that somehow that faith will persevere in Christ alone, even through many trials, dangers, toils, and snares. That's the theme of the Scriptures and of the book of Hebrews. So, fourthly, apostasy, the big misunderstanding. Can you lose your salvation? We would say once saved, always saved, if truly saved. The Scriptures give us words of assurance, and we've heard them this morning already in our assurance of pardon, in our reflection. But let me read two of those now, and I think they'll be on the wall. John chapter 10, verses 27 to 29. How can we believe in assurance of salvation when we hear these strong warnings from the author of Hebrews? Well, here's two reasons why. My sheep, Jesus said, listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. So in this way, we understand the Lord is teaching with authority that He loses no one. No one who He has been given, truly given by God the Father. 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, similarly it says, speaking of those who apostatized, those who went away, it says, they went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. 
For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. That's the mentality. That's the understanding. That saving faith will really save. It will endure. It will persevere. And those who wither and fall away, it's like Jesus' teaching of the sower and the seed. Some seed falls here, springs up quickly, signs of life, but the heat, the scorching sun withers it, and it bears no fruit, and it's proved to be what it is. Then there are these very difficult words coming in verse 6. It says, to their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again. And I think the best understanding of that and what commentaries and commentators tend to agree on is that he seems to be making a parallel to these who would apostatize to those first fickle crowds that were happy to see Jesus crucified and who mocked him. And for the soldiers who made a mockery of Jesus He seems to, in his own way, be saying that spirit of the fickle crowds then can continue now. And it's as if they're mocking Jesus all over again, crucifying Him again, just like those first fickle crowds did. It's a hard teaching, but it's what He's preparing and challenging these people to awaken to. It's His sobering through a warning. Now secondly, He uses a familiar illustration. These next two points are much quicker than the first. But he uses the familiar illustration about how fruit matters. When I read it, it probably sounded to you like parables you've heard from Jesus, teaching you've heard from uh, John the Baptist, stories even from the Old Testament. Repeated images from Old Testament and New Testament about the importance of bearing fruit. Psalm 1 captures that importance of being a tree planted by streams of water, bearing fruit. That imagery is given to us in Psalm 1. Isaiah gives us in his prophecy images of the importance of bearing fruit. John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 3 says, Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And every tree that does not produce good fruit, it says what? must be cut down and thrown into the fire, which is the same language the author of Hebrews uses. It's a familiar uh, illustration. And that is not that our fruit saves us. No, 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 no. Our fruit does not save us. It's our faith in Christ alone who saves us. But saving faith bears fruit. Saving faith results in a changed life in new appetites, in new pursuits. That's what saving faith will do. And that's what he's saying. And we're not surprised by any of this because it is so familiar. Matthew chapter 7, these words should be familiar. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. That's Jesus speaking. And then just a few verses later, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day of judgment, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in Your name and in Your name drive out demons and in Your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew You. Away from Me, 
you evil doer. Jesus is concerned that his disciples bear fruit. The author of Hebrews is concerned that Christians persevere in faith and saving faith will prove itself through the fruit that your life bears. Sobering, alarming, intended to get the attention of sleepy Christians, some of which you are right now. Um, And I understand it. I understand it. Third point. Last point. The pastoral shoulder squeeze that he offers. The word of encouragement. And that is that there is a blessed assurance for those who persevere. You can have a confident hope when you are persevering in faith through hardship and suffering and disappointment, that you will continue to seek to worship the living God and want to honor Him despite your hardship and suffering, that is a fruit of faith that should give you a blessed assurance that God is at work in me. I see it. I'm a horrible person. But He loves me still and I want to worship Him. Continue to confess my sins to Him and look to Him for the mercy and pardon that He alone can offer. Two things about this word of encouragement. First, He shows us some of the evidence. He speaks to them pastorally. And this is where He says, now I'm, I'm confident that you're in a better place. This is the professor after going over the syllabus and casting threats. It's the professor saying, now, now, I'm sure that none of you are going to do this. But I had to say the hard truth. Right? So he says there in verse 10, 11, and 12, listen again to what he says. God is not unjust. No, sorry, verse 9. Even though we speak like this, all these hard words, dear friends, we're convinced of better things in your case. The things that have to do with salvation. That's his encouragement. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you've shown Him as you've helped His people and continue to help them. That's how he encourages them. He says, look, I I know that the Lord has a long memory. He will remember your love of Him, your service of Him, and your love and service of His people. So it's an encouraging word. Now, he could have just crushed these people, driven them into fear, and been done with his letter. But this is where it's good to remember that pastoral shoulder squeezes are important. It's not just hard truth. It's trying to affirm people. And so I could take the time to do that, and we could affirm the evidence of faith that we see. uh, That our church, our people give. They give financially of their resources. That we might have a church. That we might have missionaries. That we might support ministries. That is evidence that in hard hard economic times, people turn loose of their money. That can be an evidence of sincere faith. Because it's a whole lot easier to hold on to it. Right? But remember, it was Demas who fell in love with the world. Right? And that was a lack of evidence of saving faith. There are all kinds of evidences that God is at work in our midst. Those things do not save us. But they can be evidence of the fruit of a sincere faith. And when we see that we're loving God and His church, that we're not turning our back on Him, that there's a blessed assurance. God is at work. He is doing something. And then He encourages perseverance in them. And I'll, I'll close 
with, with a few words here. He encourages perseverance. And this is where he gets singular and specific. He had just said, kind of speaking of the whole, that I can see the evidence of faith in you. But now he says, but I want each of you to persevere in an earnest faith. And it seems that this is where maybe he's acknowledging, I know there are individuals who need to be pushed to be more sincere in their faith. Collectively as a whole, there's a persevering church made up of these Hebrews. But there are some individuals. Each of you needs to persevere. Each of you individually must be earnest in your faith. You must persevere. Don't be sluggish. Don't be lazy. He's using that language for the second time. And then he says, endure with patience for the promised inheritance. That's his encouragement. There's good stuff. I see it in the whole. Some of you need to be tweaked. You need to be nudged. You need to be pushed because your faith needs to be sincere and it's being tested. John Newton, who you're familiar with, we sing so many of his songs. You know, his life, there was a part of his life that he looked back on with great regret. And he's the author of the hymn who gives us the words that I quoted earlier in the sermon, but that apply to these Hebrews and to us. He says, through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. But it's grace that brought me safe thus far. And it's grace that will lead me home. And that is the sum for every one of us. If we're persevering in our faith, whew, grace has gotten us this far. And it's going to have to take God's grace to get us home. Amen? Let's pray that that would be true, and then we'll come to the table. Lord, we thank You for Your mercy and Your grace. And we need to be reminded of it. We thank You that You give the gift of saving faith. We can't earn it. We can't muster it up. But You provide a persevering faith that can overcome disappointment, hardship, suffering. And Lord, as we close in song, confessing our sin and pleading for mercy. Would you help us to know that you love it when we speak this way? And would you encourage us as we come to the table that we might know that our faith can be strengthened by you and you alone. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.